17, Matthew chapter 17 this morning. I'm going to finish up Matthew 17 this uh, last Sunday of 2013 and be ready to start chapter 18 in the new year. Matthew chapter 17, and we'll be looking at verses 24 through 27. See, the title is Lessons from Fishing. You think I know anything about it? Uh, so you know it's not going to be lessons from my fishing. <laughs> uh, maybe uh, lessons from a fishing experience that the Lord Jesus Christ had. Okay, thank you. Matthew chapter 17, verse 24 through 27 we don't know exactly how it happened or who it happened to, but uh, somewhere, either upon or by the shores of the Sea of Galilee, someone lost, a, lost hold of a Greek stator. Now, what's a Greek stator? Well, a Greek stator is a gold or silver Greek coin from one of the Greek states, and I suppose it would be similar to our quarters that have a state on them uh, nowadays, uh, but uh, not similar in value. Uh, a Greek stater was worth about the rough equivalent of two average day's wages for a common man. So one coin was worth about two days of wages. Now, if you're working for a quarter for every two days, then you're uh, not making much. But uh, back then, a Greek stater was a uh, silver or gold corn, coin worth about two days' wages. And someone lost one. They lost hold of it in the water. They watched it fall into the water, perhaps. Perhaps they were walking along where the boats were docked. They were flipping a coin up, and maybe they mishandled it, and they lost control, and it went into the water. Or maybe they were out on the fishing boat, and they were doing some business. They were maybe getting paid. Or they're paying off a, a debt or a bet. And they fumbled the coin and it slipped out of their hands into the water. Perhaps someone had set the coin on the rail on the boat there. And they turned to talk to someone and they flipped it off the rail. We don't know how it happened or to who it happened. But somehow a coin got off into the water. However it happened, we can safely imagine that they probably heard their coin, two full days' earnings, fall into the water and kind of hopelessly sickening thought as they saw it sink out of sight and they went home kicking themselves. Said, why did I, was I so careless? Now imagine that coin... <coughs> sinking into the sea, twirling and shining its, in its descent, glistening perhaps and flashing as it captured the reflection of the sunlight. And imagine a large fish come swimming by at just that moment, and imagine how it was attracted to the sparkling object that descended before it, and imagine how instinctively struck and, it struck and swallowed the object, only to be surprised as much as a fish can be surprised, I guess, by the fact that it was a hard cold coin. Imagine the fish doing its best to maybe spit it out 
but he got lodged in his gullet as it swam away to the other regions beneath the Sea of Galilee and searching maybe for some more digestible tidbit that would not get stuck in his mouth. But know this, that all these seeming insignificant events, the wage earner who accidentally lost his wages, the sinking of the coin down to a particular spot in the sea, and the fish that came by to swallow it and swim away were all under the control of a sovereign God. Know that all these things were part of His purposeful plan. Now let's look here at Matthew 17, beginning in verse 24. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? He saith, Yes. And when he was coming to the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? Peter saith unto him, Of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, Then are the children free? Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea, and cast an hook, and take up the fish that first cometh up, and when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money that take, and give unto them for me and thee. Now out of all the gospel writers, Matthew is the only one that tells us this remarkable story. And one of the reasons that it might have caught Matthew's attention was because he himself was a tax man by trade. And when Jesus performed the miracle with taxes, he was probably speaking Matthew's love language, just as he's probably speaking of Peter's love language when he performed a miracle with the fish. But I think the chief reason that Matthew was led by the Spirit of God to tell us this story when the other gospel writers did not is because it spoke particularly to the Jewish kinsmen about Jesus himself. You see, the tax that was being collected in this particular story was a tax that had its roots in the Old Testament Jewish law. And at the time when the law was being given by God through Moses, God commanded that a particular tax be collected any time that a census of people was taken. We read over in Exodus chapter 30 and verse 11 through 16 where it contains the command from God. It says there, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number... Then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord, when thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them, when thou numberest them. This they shall give every one that passeth among them that are numbered, a half a shekel, after a shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is twenty giras. A half shekel should be an offering to the Lord. And every one that passeth among them that are numbered, from twenty years old and above shall give an offering unto the Lord. The rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less than a half shekel. And when they give the offering unto the Lord to make an atonement for their souls. 
And thou shalt take the atonement of money of the children of Israel, and shalt appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of the congregation, that it may be a memorial unto the children of Israel before the Lord to make an atonement for your souls. Now several times in this command from the Lord, reference is made to the significance of the collection of the half shekel for each man. You notice there in that passage, it was given as a ransom. God counted the half shekel as a ransom for the life of a man who gave it. The life was being numbered in the census. And it was an offering of the Lord to make atonement for themselves. And it's not just a coincidence that attention is drawn to Jesus through the performance of a miracle with respect to this particular poll tax. The tax had long ago pointed ahead to Jesus as the ransom for the life of every person who placed their trust in Him. The Bible tells us that for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Jesus Himself said, The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. And so the story isn't just meant to tell us where a really great and valuable fishing spot might be found. You know, boy, if you found money in that fish's mouth, that'd be a place to fish, wouldn't it? You see, this story was not told because of that. It was told to point us to Jesus Christ. It's meant to speak particularly to the Jewish people. It was also meant to speak to all of us who need redemption. It's about Jesus, who's not, the only, uh, not only the long-awaited king of the Jews, but is himself the atonement for sin and the ransom for the soul that the Jewish law was meant to point to. And so I want us to look closer at this passage and learn together some lessons it has to teach us about the attributes of our wonderful Redeemer. And the first thing that it has to teach us concerning Jesus is concerning His omniscience. His omniscience. Jesus knows the thoughts of His disciples. Now we can see this in how He greeted Peter. As soon as Peter walked into the house, Jesus and his disciples had just returned from their travels up north and they had gone to the mountain where he had revealed himself to Peter, James, and John in the glory of his transfiguration. And no sooner do they return to Capernaum and along the shores of the Sea of Galilee than Peter is confronted by those who collected this half-shekel tax for the temple. I think two things need to be noted here. First of all, this is not the same as the sort of tax that Matthew would be collecting. Matthew, when he was collecting taxes, collected a tax from his own people on behalf of the Roman government, which was occupying their area. The tax in our passage this morning is not the tax that Matthew collected. Rather, this is a tax collected by the Jewish people from the Jewish people for the benefit of the Jewish people's temple. And the Jews objected fiercely to the tax that Matthew collected. 
but they would not have object, objected to the tax being collected in this passage this morning. They would have felt an obligation to contribute to the maintenance of the temple. But the second thing to note is that this tax, though based on the Old Testament law, was not fully in keeping with the requirements of the Old Testament law. The Old Testament passage there that we read in Exodus required that this tax be collected whenever a census was being taken. But here we don't read of any census being taken at all. Some New Testament scholars have speculated from this that the paying of this tax we read about in this passage had become over the years kind of a voluntary custom rather than a legal requirement. There wasn't any actual legal requirement to pay it, even though there was strong social pressure to do so. And so this pressure stands behind the question that those who collected the tax would ask of Peter, doth not your master pay tribute? In other words, does your teacher not pay his temple tax? Their question was constructed so to anticipate a positive answer. And such a question wouldn't have been needed to be asked if the tax were obligatory. But perhaps the tax gatherers were entertaining doubts as to whether or not Jesus would do what other Jewish men were obligated to do. After all, Jesus was gaining a reputation as a breaker of the Sabbath. He was often found to be at odds with the religious leaders of the day. Perhaps also he thought himself to be above the paying of the customary temple tax as well. And so when they asked Peter, and Peter told them, yes, perhaps he was saying this in part to protect his master from the scrutiny of the tax collectors, he was eager to defend the reputation of Jesus as the Messiah, and it may even be that Peter said yes in part to get the tax collectors off his own back as well. In any case, after leaving them, he walked into the house where Jesus and the others were staying. Clearly, Peter intended to mention the tax collectors to Jesus, but it's then that we see this clear indication of Jesus' omniscience. We're told that Jesus prevented him. What's that mean? Well, the word there is the word for anticipated. We don't use it in this light anymore, but uh, it's a, an old English word, which means Jesus anticipated him, or as our Bibles say, he prevented him. Literally, Jesus anticipated him beforehand, and he spoke before Peter spoke. By the way, those of you, or those of, I don't know that we have anyone here that has a problem with the King James Version, but there are people today, Christians, who say, well, it's too hard. There are words like this prevented here that don't make sense to me. What does that mean? You know what you have to do when you come across a word like that? Look it up. Look it up. Educate yourself. Find out what it means. But you don't have to do that. I did it for you today. So it means anticipated. Literally, Jesus anticipated what he was thinking. He spoke before Peter spoke. 
He knew the thoughts of his disciple Peter before he had even a chance to utter a word. And he asked him about the very subject that Peter had in mind. And he does this to Peter in order to teach him something. He asked a question about what was on Peter's mind in order to set Peter thinking about it even more. Over in the book of John, chapter 2 and verse 24 and 25, we're told that Jesus knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. The Bible even tells us that Jesus knew the thoughts of those who were his enemies in Matthew 12. And if we are out of fellowship with Jesus Christ, or if we're in a state of enmity against him, this should disturb us greatly. Because God knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're thinking right now. But if we are to open up and be up front with Him, if we seek sincerely to follow as He leads, well, that shouldn't disturb us. In fact, it's a reason for us to take great comfort. Jesus knows what's in our hearts even better than we do. He's able to answer our deepest questions before we even know to ask them. And we can be utterly open an open book to Jesus and say to him, as King David wrote in Psalm 139, 1-6, O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thoughts afar off. Thou compassed my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, Thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain to it. See, all of our questions, all of our doubts, all of our fears, all of our temptations, even the most intimate thoughts of our minds, even the things we're so ashamed of that we dare not express them, it's all known by Jesus. And you know what? He loves you anyway. He loves you anyway. Now Jesus didn't anticipate Peter's question in order to make a fool out of him. He showed him that he knew Peter's thoughts in order to teach Peter what he needed to know about his Lord and his Master. He asked Peter, What thinkest thou, Simon? Not because he wanted Peter's opinion, but because he wanted to steer Peter's thinking in the right direction about himself. And this leads us to the second thing that this story reveals to us about Jesus. The thing that Jesus wanted Peter to understand about himself, and that was his deity. Jesus holds supremacy as the Son of God. I think it's interesting that Jesus used Peter's old name here. He called him Simon. Back in chapter 16, we saw there that Jesus gave him the name Peter in order to emphasize that he was a rock of a man who stood strong upon the solid confession of faith in Jesus as the Son or of Christ, the Son of the living God. But I think that he called Peter Simon here because, you know what? Peter was behaving like his old self. He was not being that rock of a man. He was once again being mindful of the things of men and not the things of God. He was not evaluating Jesus rightly. 
You see, Peter had assumed that Jesus felt himself to be obligated to do the poll tax that everyone else was obligated to, and he assumed that in that respect, Jesus was just like everyone else. But that's when Jesus surprised him with a tax question that revealed Jesus' supremacy over such obligations. What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute, or of their own children or of strangers? Now, do you think there were times when Jesus, or Peter was just a little afraid to answer the question from Jesus He certainly knew the correct answer. But he may not have been sure where all of this was going. And it may just be me, but I wonder if Peter didn't answer the question with a little uncertainty in his voice. Uh, 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 Of strangers? Well, apparently he gave the right answer. And Jesus said to him, then are the children free? And he said, well, what does that mean? We know that children aren't free, okay? So it means something else here. The implication of Jesus' answer was he was the Son of God. Which, of course, Peter already knew that. And as the Son of God, he was under no obligation at all to pay a tax collected among men for the upkeep of the temple of his father, This was nothing less than a bold assertion of Jesus' supremacy as the Son of God over the temple tax and even over the temple itself. Now, do you remember when Jesus said something very similar to this to the Pharisees? They had accused him of breaking the Sabbath because he and his disciples were rubbing a little bit of raw grain together in their hands and then they were eating the kernels. And Jesus reminded the Pharisees of how the law of God had permitted the priest who worked in the temple on the Sabbath to profane the Sabbath by performing their duties and remain blameless. And then Jesus shocked them by saying, But I say unto you that in this place is no one greater than the temple. And similarly, here in our passage this morning, Jesus is saying that as the Son of of God, who is the Lord of the temple... He is under no obligation to pay the temple tax. And such tax is only rightly collected from those who are the, quote, strangers and who are not those who are sons. And the astute Jewish listener might have recalled the prophetic words of Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 where it says that the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. And would then understand that Jesus claiming to be the very Lord of the temple, he's claiming to be exempt from the tax that should be levied on strangers and not on sons of the king. And what's more, Jesus seems to be including Peter and the other disciples in that status. He speaks of sons in the plural. And he goes on to say, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them. That reminds us that as it says in John chapter 1 and verse 12, to as many as received Jesus has he given the right to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, in Jesus Christ, we are not outsiders to God's household. We are members of the family. The veil in the temple doesn't block our way any longer. 
but has been torn down from top to bottom so that we may freely approach the Father's throne of grace in our time of need. The temple was a place in which the sinner would meet a holy God to receive forgiveness and favor and everything that the temple was intended to achieve for the sinner before Jesus came has now been accomplished by Jesus on the Calvary's cross. It's all ours now by faith. And as the Son of God, He is supreme in the Father's favor. And in Him, we are now free before the Father as He is. Now, keeping the supremacy of Jesus as the Son in mind, keeping His absolute exemption from the obligations of men before us, let's marvel at the next thing that this passage teaches us. Number three is His meekness. His meekness. Jesus condescends to the sensitivities of men. And even though he is supreme, even though he is exempt from the temple tax as the son of the king, and even though he declares that Peter exempt from him, Jesus says, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, and he sends Peter off to pay the tax. Now, when we see that passage there, or the word translated offend, It means to cause someone to stumble. And this suggests that though Jesus is the Lord of the temple and he's under no obligation to pay this temple tax, he nevertheless sees it as it is done so that an unnecessary stumbling block would not be placed before the Jewish people. Again, in doing this, Jesus establishes a pattern of gracious sensitivity to the weaknesses of others that the Apostle Paul followed in his ministry. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I may gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law as without the law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I may gain them that are without the law. To the weak became I as weak, that I may gain the weak. I made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. It was an act of condescending love on the part of Paul to do this, and it was even a greater act of condescending love on the part of the Son of God to do this. He possessed all the rights as the Son of God, but he didn't insist on his rights. Instead, he complied to the sensitivities of men so that as not to offend them or put up any necessary, unnecessary roadblocks to their faith. Just think how far he went to reach, in reaching out to serve us. It says over in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself had suffered being tempted, is able to succor them that are tempted. So the Son of God, who knew the thoughts of his disciple Peter, established that he is supreme over the temple tax, and yet he meekly, sent his disciple to pay it so as not to offend those who were seeking to, he was seeking to reach. And look how Peter was to pay this. 
We read in our text this morning, Go thou to the sea and cast a hook, and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money that take and give unto them for me and thee. Remember the man that lost the money? That coin that had fallen into the water? Remember that fish that swallowed the coin and swam away? All of it was a part of the perfect and purposeful plan of our Savior. And that highlights yet another one of his wonderful qualities, his authority. Jesus is sovereign over the details of life. Just think about it. Jesus didn't tell Peter, you know, go throw a net into the water and pull up a bunch of fish. And maybe one of those fish would have a coin in its mouth. No, he sent Peter off to cast a single hook into the water. He didn't even tell him to where to cast the hook. Just go and cast that hook in the water. And he didn't tell Peter to keep on casting the hook and keep on pulling out fish until he found one with money in it. He said, you pull up the very first fish and in that mouth of that fish you will find the money. Just think of the other demonstrations of Jesus' sovereignty and his rule during his earthly ministry. Just think of the ways he demonstrated all these things in perfect order and arranged all the details of the circumstances in such a way to accomplish his good purpose. Think of how, as he and his disciples drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, and he sent two of his disciples out, saying, And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem, and they were come to Bethphage, under the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose, him, loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto thee, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he, sh- he will send them. They found everything just like Jesus had said. Or think about how the day of his last meal with them as the disciples asked him, where he wanted them to prepare the Passover meal. And he said, and he ascended, sendeth forth two of his disciples and saith unto them, Go ye into the city, and there you shall meet a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wheresoever he shall go in, say ye to the good men of the house, The master saith, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you the large upper room furnished and prepared there make ready for us. You know, sometimes the circumstances of life come along and we get frustrated, don't we? But they should never frustrate us if we're walking with Jesus. There is nothing that is not under the rule of our sovereign Lord and Master when he sends us out somewhere to serve his cause in some way, we arrive to find that he's already been there. He's arranged everything in advance. No doubt many of you could give testimony to this. Every day you and I can affirm, as Paul did, that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained 
that we should walk in them. Now before we leave this passage this morning, I can't resist but pointing out one more wonderful attribute of our Savior as it reveals to us and we see His compassion. Jesus cares for the needs of His friends. I don't think it's a small thing at all that Jesus, the sovereign God, Son of God, mercifully tells Peter to catch the fish, put, pull the coin out of his mouth and give it to the tax collectors, as Jesus said, for me and thee. You know, he didn't have to do that. He could have told Peter, the tax collectors were asking if I pay the tax. Well, go catch the fish and pay my tax. That'll teach him. As for you, though, you got to catch your own fish. But Jesus didn't do that. He is a merciful Savior. He graciously provides not only for His own needs, but also for those who follow and obey Him. Now, it doesn't tell us what happened next, but we're left with the impression that Peter obeyed the Lord and that everything happened just as Jesus had said. Did Jesus also pay the taxes for the other disciples? Well, I don't know. It doesn't appear that he sent Peter out to catch more fish with more coins. It appears that there was only provision for himself and Peter, but at least he provided for Peter. And you know what that teaches me? You better stay close to Jesus. Stay close to Jesus. And so then here's Jesus as he's revealed to us in this remarkable story. He's omniscient. He knows our thoughts before we even utter them to him. He's the Son of God. And he stands supreme above all things that should concern, might concern us. He's meek and he condescends to stoop down to us in our weakness and our sensitivities. He's authoritative and he reigns sovereignly over the details of our lives. And he's compassionate toward us and he gladly and graciously meets our daily needs as if they were his own. And I'm glad this morning that in the plan of God, someone lost that coin. Don't you hate it when you lose things? But I'm glad someone lost that coin, aren't you? If it hadn't been for that uh, that loss, we wouldn't have had this story about his marvelous, the marvelous attributes of our Savior. And so we could say, well, it was money well spent. I wonder, do you know that God knows your every thought and your every desire? And his desire is that our thinking be his thinking. That can only happen if we have a personal relationship with Him. You have a personal relationship. Are you close to the Lord Jesus Christ? We need to recognize His deity, His condescension, His meekness, His authority, His compassion that He has for each one of us. If you don't have a personal relationship with Him, how can you, how can you miss what God is teaching us this morning. Trust Him today. Let's pray. Father in heaven.